Well, if you'll join me again in Ephesians, this time, chapter 3. We are making progress, slow and steady. It has already been some 20 weeks that we've been in this book of Ephesians, and I bring that out only to entreat your prayers. I certainly believe and highly value the method of expositional preaching, but it doesn't come without pitfalls and dangers. One of the dangers is to become cold and stale. That's not my desire. So pray that the Lord would not let us fall into that. Pray that as we study this book each week, the Lord would bring and add his blessing to it and that we would know nothing of coldness of heart Certainly, it would be a blight on us as a congregation to be bored by the Word of God, and certainly not my intent to bore you. So pray, pray for your own hearing and my preaching. Entreat the Lord to help us, to come alongside of us, to feed us from His Word, and I trust He will do just that. So if you're open to the third chapter, we're going to read the first few verses here all the way to verse through verse 7 but before I read let me make you aware that this is a chapter of mystery three times in these few verses we are going to read the word mystery it's in verse 3 it's in verse 4 it's in verse 9 so let's read it and see exactly what Paul is revealing to us or more importantly what the spirit of god is revealing through him through paul to us verse one he says for this reason i paul the prisoner of christ jesus for you gentiles if indeed you have heard of the dispensation or the stewardship of the grace of god which was given to me for you how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us, give us ears to hear, give us a real appetite and a desire for the things of God. We pray you would come alongside, be our instructor and teacher, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Since this is a paragraph that reveals mystery. Perhaps we should try to give some definition to the word mystery itself. It has a particular meaning in the scriptures. It has a very particular meaning here in Paul's writing. Not only is the word itself mentioned three times, but there is a progression to it. First, in the third verse, it's just generally given to us the word alone, mystery. And then in verse 4, Paul broadens it just a bit, and he calls it the mystery of Christ. And then in verse 9, he speaks of the fellowship in the mystery. 
So if we are to benefit from these verses, we have to understand what Paul means by using this word in this way. It means something that was previously concealed, or at least partly concealed, but now has been made known in the gospel. So before we go on any further with this idea of mystery, let's see what Paul says has shed light on it. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You think of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. We refer to the things that we read there, many of them, as being types and shadows, prefigurements of the person of Jesus, of the work of Jesus, what he would accomplish, how he would accomplish it. But when Christ comes in the Gospels, and when Paul writes of him in the epistles and John and so forth, when the true light has come, all of those shadows of the Old Testament, all of those types and prefigurements, they fade away. The reason they fade away is the light has now come, and the light has driven away the darkness and all of the shadow. So the mystery here revealed is not being revealed by the intellect of Paul. It's not being revealed by the fact that he was reared as a Pharisee. He had great knowledge, no doubt, but it's not his intellect that is driving away the darkness. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that is removing all of this shrouded darkness concerning the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. So the mystery is something previously concealed but now made known in the gospel. Ian Hamilton is helpful here when he says, In the New Testament, a mystery is not a secret that only the spiritually initiated can understand. Rather, it is a truth that God has revealed for the salvation and the sanctification of sinners. So the mystery that Paul is writing about here is gospel truth. We need to understand what it is because it has a particular application to us, Gentiles in the flesh. And in the flesh as Gentiles, what were we? According to Paul in verse 11, just to summarize that, we were without hope, without Christ, without God in the world. We were in a desperate condition, no doubt. Your Bible may be helpful as mine in the uninspired words that it places over the paragraphs in verse, excuse me, in chapter 3. The first seven verses in my Bible contains this heading, the mystery revealed. And then in verses 8 down through verse 13, the heading is the purpose of the mystery. And then to finish out the chapter, that last paragraph, the heading is and appreciation of the mystery. What is this mystery that Paul is talking about? The inclusion of Gentiles into the family of God. Well, you may be thinking, if you know your Bible well, you may be thinking, well, this is not so mysterious because the Old Testament is full of verses that speak about the inclusion of of the Gentiles. Let me give you just a sampling of those. All the way back in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman 
is an inclusive way of saying that all of Adam's posterity, regardless of race, nationality, which hadn't even come into existence yet and wouldn't for some time, as you fast forward through the first chapters of Genesis, all inclusive of the seed of the woman would be in time redeemed from the fall that had just occurred. Certainly that would in time include Jew and Gentile. But then there's some very specific things that are said. You go over to the 12th chapter in Genesis and we read there that God says to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Again, that's inclusive language. We read in the Psalms, verses like this, Psalm 67, verse 4, let all the nations be glad. Why would they be glad? Because if you read the psalm and understand the imagery there, all the nations will be included into the making known of the grace of God through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 49, when Isaiah begins to write about the servant that would come, he says of that servant that he would be identified as a light to the Gentiles. You skip over a few chapters and get to Isaiah 60 and verse 3. It says there that the Gentiles will come to the light of Zion. The light of Zion being the Messiah, being Jesus Christ. All of these Old Testament references and many more are picked up on by the apostles and preached in the opening chapters of, the, of Acts when Peter stands to preach. But yet we also find Simeon, the old man, in Luke chapter 2, as he takes the Christ child into his arms and he begins to bless God, he concludes that blessing by saying that he is holding in his arms a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. All of this considered, why is it that Paul speaks of this inclusion as mysterious. Hasn't it been foretold? Yes, it has. But there is a particular element of it that had not been foretold. What was not fully comprehended under the Old Covenant or the Old Testament is that God would deal with Jews and Gentiles. And here to me is the, the mysterious part of this. He would deal with them alike on the common ground of grace. That's the mystery. That he would deal with them alike on the common ground of his grace. So here come the explanations of this mystery that Paul is writing about. Before we get too involved in it, I think it might be helpful for us to go back into these previous verses of chapter 2 and see exactly the plight or the condition that the Gentiles were in. I've, I've already alluded to it in verses 11 through 13. We're told there that we were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without Christ in the world. If you skip down into verses 14... Through 18, we're told that Christ, through his death on the cross, through the shedding of his blood, that he has torn down this middle wall of separation. He has abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law. 
The result of that in verses 19 through the end of the second chapter is, Therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God. And you'll note the beginning of the third chapter, Paul uses all of that as foundation for this phrase, for this reason. And let me just remind you how much ground has been covered. The Gentiles had been taken from a position of hopelessness and have been brought over into the family of God, a family filled with hope, with truth, with Christ himself. But as Paul begins to talk about this mystery, notice that what he begins in the first verse of chapter 3 doesn't find its natural fulfillment until you get over to verse 14. You see that? Verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, and some of your Bibles, the translators have placed there after the word Gentiles a little dash. You see that? Now Paul goes on this what I call inspired detour, an excursus, if you will, concerning the mystery, his part in the mystery, his part in revealing the mystery, the stewardship that he has of the mystery, and he gets all the way through that, and by the time we get to verse 14, then he picks back up where he began the third chapter by saying, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father, and he prays this great prayer, which... Lord willing, in future weeks, we'll get to study together. It seems fitting that this prayer would come immediately after all of the great truths that he concluded chapter 2 with. Now that they have been included, this is what he prays for them. This is what he asks the Lord to do for them. But before we can get there, we have to deal with his inspired detour of sorts. In these few verses, Paul reveals himself in at least three ways. And all of these are helpful and instructive to us as we see the grace of God at work. Paul calls himself in the first verse a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Secondly, he calls himself the steward of God's grace. And then lastly, the revealer of this mystery. So I want to look at each one of those in turn. Begin here in verse 1 where he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Not many would doubt that Paul is in prison. He speaks of his chains later. Not many doubt that he's in prison in Rome. That's why we get at the end of this letter this great picture of a Roman soldier that is equated to the armor of God. Paul doesn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't see himself as a prisoner of Caesar. He sees himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. We might say it this way, that Paul sees himself as one that has been shut up to the will of God. God has hedged him in. He has 
in a sense, built a wall around him that he could not break free from. But yet he has embraced this. He recognizes this. He glories in this. But the thing that I think that I want you to see this from this verse, even though we are so far removed and none of us most likely in this life are going to be imprisoned for our faith, that might come, but we'll not be imprisoned in the sense of Paul here on behalf of another group of people. The benefit that we gain from this, I think, is to see ourselves in some degree or another in every way as being prisoners of Jesus Christ. Shut up to the will of God. Because what was true of Paul is true of you and I. Paul had a specific role to play in the revealing of the mystery of the grace of God. You and I have a specific role to play in God's economy as well. That's what gives our life purpose. That's what gives our life meaning. That's what keeps us from becoming so frustrated when things don't go like we thought they would or like we thought they should. I suppose if we'd go all the way back to Acts chapter 9 where Paul is confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus and it's revealed to him there that he is a chosen vessel, would Paul there have ever thought that his life, fast forward, would end up in prison? Would he not ride gloriously through the land preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ with people following in his train, coming to faith in Christ. That happened, but not in such a grand and glorious way. And I think too often, if we're honest with ourselves, when the Lord hems us in to something or another, we're very slow to recognize it and see it. We're very slow to do what Paul does and and that is to glory in it and recognize that it's Christ that's done this. Christ has shut me up to this. I read a sentence this week that I want to share with you. The sentence is, It is gloriously liberating, as well as reassuring, to know that your life is governed by the sovereign, gracious, and wise will of God. That's what Paul knew. He just mentions in passing, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He doesn't dwell there. He doesn't wallow in self-pity there. He mentions the fact of it, and then he moves on. And isn't it indeed exactly as this sentence reads, gloriously liberating and assuring to know your life is governed by a sovereign, gracious, wise God. Wouldn't we be prone to lose heart otherwise? Wouldn't we be prone to, to wallow in self-pity otherwise? This is one of the overarching principle, biblical principles of living the Christian life is knowing that God, in mercy, in grace, is sovereign over the affairs of your life. Amen. That does not mean that bad things will not happen to you. Very often, that is a part, if not a big part, of his plan. We're told many places in the Scripture that suffering is needful and necessary to produce in us 
the fruit of the Spirit in some form or another. You know this by your own experience. When all is going well and life is good, and there are, are seemingly no problems presently or even on the horizon, are you as close to God in that time as you are when something has befalled you and has pushed you in to reliance and dependence upon Christ? It's not that you weren't dependent upon Him before. Now you're just keenly aware of it. Let your body hurt a little bit. Let your body experience some kind of sickness. Let someone you know become sick. Let your child become sick. Your parents, whomever it may be, struggle in your business, in your work, whatever it may be. And what happens? Really two things. You're either going to become embittered against God and walk away, or God willing, you're going to see that He has brought this into your life to drive you in close, to depend on Him, to test Him, try Him, prove His faithfulness to you. And so we go back to this recognition of Paul. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He's not a prisoner of Caesar. He's the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And he says, for you Gentiles. And then he reminds them, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. The word dispensation here in some of your Bibles and probably better understood as a stewardship. This is something that God had entrusted to him. We know that a steward was one entrusted with a master's possessions. So here God is entrusted with the grace of God to dispense or steward it to the Gentiles. It's interesting, isn't it, that to this church at Ephesus, of which he ministered for the space of three years and knew so well that in Acts 20, when he was leaving the region, called the elders to come and he gave them a charge that he would say to this church, this group of people, if indeed you have heard of what God has done for me. Probably we should understand it this way rather than if as since. Since you have heard of the dispensation or stewardship of the grace of God. Notice in Paul's mind what he was a steward of. The grace of God. You realize, Christian, that in some sense, some degree, you and I are stewards of the grace of God. We are to care for it, preach it, defend it, to death if necessary. That's what Paul was doing. He says, this was given to me for you by revelation. Paul doesn't tell us exactly when this was revealed to him. Perhaps it was on the Damascus Road. Perhaps it was at another period of time when he was caught up into the third heaven and unable to speak the things that he saw there. We don't know, but what he does say is that it was given to him by revelation. Christ himself had made known to him the mystery. 
as I have briefly written already. And I think we best understand that by what immediately proceeds. Not that we have a missing letter of Paul or something like that. He's already told us. When you read, you may understand my knowledge in, now he calls it, the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. And then he begins to really unpack what he means by using the word mystery in verse 5. When he says, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets now. I think we should realize and be appreciative for the period of time that the Lord has us in. Do you realize how much gospel light we are privileged to? And how greatly we take it for granted. We have the entire revelation of God. We're not living under just the old covenant. We're not living under the voice of the prophets. We're not living just under the Psalms or the Proverbs. The historical narrative books or even the books of the law. Not discrediting those at all because... It was of those that Paul said to Timothy, these are wise to, these are enough to make you wise unto salvation. The point that is being made is how gospel privileged we are. And not only in the time in which we live that we have the word of God, but where we live. We are living in a unique place in a unique time in history with more freedoms than Christians throughout the world today and certainly in times past have ever known. And yet sadly, we are representative of the most, sometimes the most immature, untaught, because we have it so easy. Paul here is writing about this great day in which we live in which this mystery of Christ the top has been blown off of it all of those verses that we referred to earlier about let the nations be glad the servant the Messiah to come would be a light to the Gentiles the Gentiles would come to the light of Zion Simeon himself saying of the baby Christ that he was a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. Now we're living on the other side. Christ has fully come. All of this has been accomplished. I, I, I can't help but just want to go back to those verses again in the, in the second chapter that speak about the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, and what he accomplished. He accomplished peace. He drove out the enmity He abolished the law. And here we are living as recipients of all of these things. And Paul is making a comparison to this understanding that we now have. He says, in other ages it was not made known to the sons of men as it has been revealed to the Spirit, excuse me, by the Spirit to His holy prophets and apostles now. So here is Paul again not just as the prisoner, but the steward of the grace of God, and now the revealer 
of this mystery. We deal with these words again just in passing that we dealt with last week, and the order here is significant when he says his holy apostles and prophets. I think he's referring to there both of these as being under New Testament era. There were apostles in the New Testament. Their ministry was short-lived. They didn't have an entire revelation of God. They were used of God themselves to make revelation known. We saw it in the end of chapter 2. We see it here. We'll see this again in the fourth chapter, spoken of all three times in the same order, apostles and prophets. Needless to say, these two offices were the ones that the Lord used by the Spirit to reveal the mystery. And now we get to verse 6. And the mystery here becomes really clear. It comes into clear focus. Under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, it was like looking at this and it was all blurry. And we try to adjust the lens and it just never really focuses down on it. We might run across a verse or two that gives some clarity, but now it's like the, the mystery has become sharp and clear and all questions are driven away. And here it is in verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. You have to love how pointed Paul is. He never leaves any room to question that these blessings flow out from Christ and His gospel. Christ and His gospel are the answer, or perhaps I should say is the answer, because you cannot separate the two. Christ and His gospel is the answer for everything. Christ and His gospel brings everything into clear focus. Yes, we're dealing with a specific context here, but let me step aside for just a moment and talk about the clarity of Christ and His gospel. Only as Christ makes the gospel known to you do you see with clear focus the desperation of your situation outside of Him. Only as Christ and His gospel comes and begins to be clear, made known by the Spirit through the preaching of the Word, by the work of the Spirit, do you begin to see how lost you are. And all of those words that are used to describe the Gentiles prior to Christ's work on the cross come home to rest upon you. Would you see those things clearly? It is in every way true of you if you are outside of Christ this morning, if you have not come to Christ by faith, that you are without hope. You are without God in the world. And there's nothing you can do to remedy that. You need Christ and His gospel. You need the gospel of Christ to shine upon you. And aren't you thankful 
that the Christ of this gospel is full of grace. He is the embodiment of truth. He is merciful. He is loving. And He is more willing, more willing to save you than at this point in time you are to come to Him. That's, that's a distinction that I think we need to make very clear. I realize sometimes our minds get swarmed by theology. And a mind swarmed by theology is a good thing. I'm not saying it's not. But sometimes the swarming of, of thoughts in our minds and theological ideas and systems and all of these things clear, obscure the clear teaching of Scripture. The clear teaching of Scripture, as simple as I can make it this morning, is that if you will come to Christ, He will have you. It's that simple. If you will come, He will have you. He will take you into His arms, and He will wash you and make you clean. The question is, will you have Him? You know, the old, one of the prophets in the Old Testament asks the question. It's a question that we need to ask this morning. The question is simple. Why would you die? Why would you die? There's no need for you to die a spiritual death. The only thing that will plunge you into a spiritual death is your own pride and unwillingness to come to Christ. Now let me ask you and even plead with you, is there any reason for you not to come to Christ? What's keeping you right now, today, from coming to Him? Can you think of anything that rises to the surface? Or whatever has risen to the surface in your own heart, in your own mind, I want you to compare it to the span of eternity. And then weigh it in the balance, if you will. Is this thing, or maybe it's, maybe it's a group of things, are these things worthy enough for me to heed and pay attention to in this life, so much so that when my eyes close in death, or if Christ is to return during my lifetime, are those things of such worth and of such value that I can continue living in my rejection of Jesus Christ? And please see it as that. If you've not come to Christ, then you are rejecting Him. We talk about and preach a free offer of the Gospel. What that means is that the Gospel is to be preached indiscriminately, right? The sower went out to sow. What did he do? Scattered seed everywhere. The free offer of the Gospel goes out. And if you will not believe it then you are rejecting Jesus Christ you are rejecting the one that gave himself for you and yes I understand that men are dead in sin 
They need the regenerating work of the Spirit to come along in them and give them these things that we talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, dead in sin, but God, who is rich in mercy, I understand the Spirit of God must come, breathe upon the slain, give them life, give them a new heart so that they can respond in faith. I understand that faith is our necessary response, but it's not our contribution. I understand all of those things, but I also understand the Scriptures say whosoever will may come. Are you a whosoever? We hold these things in great tension. There is the sovereignty of God which we must preach, which we are dependent upon, which the Scriptures unfold for us so clearly, but there's also the responsibility of man. You. You have to come to Christ. You must repent of your sin. Turning from your sin to Christ. Will you do that? If the answer is no, either in verbal form or just by inaction, then know for certain you have rejected Christ again. And beware. That's another layer of hardening upon your conscience. The Bible talks about that. That's not my thought. The Bible talks about getting to a point in place in life where your conscience has become seared as with a hot iron. Where the things of God no longer prick you like they used to prick. That pinging of conscience that is wooing you to Christ and drawing you to Christ, it fades over time. I'm not saying that anyone ever reaches a point of being unsavable because what is impossible with men is possible with God. But I'm saying there is a general principle outlined in the Scripture that every time you sit under the preaching of the Gospel and you in your heart resolve that you will not accept this Christ, you've just added another layer, another layer, another layer. It's only because God is gracious that He gives you another opportunity to add another layer. But someday, time will run short. Your life is a vapor, young person. I know you don't sense it. I know you have really no idea of how quickly your life is going to pass by. But it's going to go so quick. Your opportunities are going to be so few to do anything great for Christ, beginning with receiving Him as Savior. The Bible tells us often of the brevity of life and the scope of eternity. very frightening for you to leave this place without Christ. Now let's get back to where we were. When Paul says of this mystery of Christ that has made, been made known more clearly now than before that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. That wall of separation has been torn down. The wall represented again by that illustration, the court of the temple in the outer court of the Gentiles. That wall has been removed by the ab abolishing of the law. 
he says, of the same body. And partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And he says, of which I became a minister or a servant according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. And let me try to make the point clearly. The point is not that a Jew quits being a Jew or a Gentile stops being a Gentile. If you want to go and, and lasso that verse out of Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, bring it to the table. Go rope it and bring it to the table. You know the verse where it, makes, where it takes all of these distinctions and the justification by faith. The point is not that we stop being Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave and free, black and white or any other color, rich or poor or whatever. The point is that these cultural, social, racial, even sexual divisions no longer define our essential identity. What then does define our essential identity? That we're in Christ. We are His doesn't matter what color my skin is. doesn't matter what color your skin is. doesn't matter where you were born. doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. It doesn't matter if in Paul's day you were a slave or a free man. It doesn't matter this morning, today, right here, whether you're male or female. What matters is whether or not you are in Jesus Christ. That's the point. I think a second point could be made here in the context of these verses. Paul's, one of his points here is that the Gentiles are not second-class Christians. They have every right, we have every right and privilege of Jewish Christians like Paul. Yes, they were greatly privileged in times past. Paul says that in the book of Romans. He says that the Jews had... What was the privilege of being Jew? He said, much in every way. To them were committed the oracles of God. They were the chosen people of God. But by the time Paul, this great Pharisee, reared at the feet of Gamaliel, by the time he writes this Ephesian letter, not just in his own life, that whole theological barricade has been removed. And isn't it a great tribute to the majesty of the grace of God that he would take one like Paul a self-righteous Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus holding the clothes of Stephen as he was stoned for preaching the very things that Paul is now writing, that the grace of God would take that man and send him to preach the gospel of grace to those that he once considered dogs, not worthy of life, not worthy of breath, their only existence being to fuel the fires of hell. That's what the grace of God does. It completely, as we said last week, turns your world upside down. You are forever changed and no longer the same person. Paul's, one of his points, Gentiles are not second class Christians. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There are no steps. You don't have to walk down any step. You just walk to the cross. Will you walk to the cross? You must. You must. 
Don't do anything else until you come to the cross of Jesus Christ. Cast yourself upon him. He will save you. He will do it. Paul ends this by recognizing the grace that was given to him in verse 7. He says, of which I became a minister. The word there is a servant. And he did so according to the gift of the grace of God given to me. Notice here, grace is always given. Grace is never earned. So if that is one of your hindrances, or if that is an obstacle to you coming to Christ, that you think you have to do something, be something, get rid of something in your life, clean this part of your life up, deal with those thoughts, none of that. Grace, grace is given. It's not earned. And let me level with you. You cannot clean yourself up enough to come. You cannot get things in great order to come to Christ. You can't do this and you can't do that. Paul realized that grace of, this grace of God was given to me by the effective working of His power. Here in this context, Paul is saying the effective working of the power of God Perhaps he has Acts 9 in mind. When the, when the effective working of the power of God broke in on him. You remember the story there? But for the sake of some who might not, Paul was on his way to drag Christians from Damascus, literally to drag them back and imprison them. While he was on his way to do that, the Lord Jesus Christ interrupted him blinded him on the road to Damascus and revealed to him the very things he's talking about here. And Saul of Tarsus became Paul, the apostle. That's the effective working of his power. Nothing hinders what he would do. His power is effective. Perhaps another hindrance or obstacle in your own mind is that I've done too much. I've seen too much. Christ won't have me. Have you ever stood beside someone who was being stoned and held their clothes? God saved the man who did that. Have you ever been like Peter, given opportunity to boldly stand for Christ, deny him, even to the point of cursing? You haven't. God saved a man like that. Have you ever been a wild man running through the tombs, cutting yourself with stones? No, nope, God saved a man like that. Have you ever been a woman caught in adultery with heaping condemnation on your head? Christ saved a woman like that. Have you ever been a blind beggar? Poor 
life decisions reduced you to nothing but being able to beg. You haven't. Christ saved a man like that. My point, young person, is this. You haven't lived long enough to send your way out of the grace of God. Nor will you. Christ is a great Savior. I don't remember who. Perhaps you remember Spurgeon or John Newton, one of those. He said two things I know. Number one, I'm a great sinner. Number two, Christ is a great Savior. Amen. This is your invitation to come to him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would work by the effective working of your power, the same power that made Saul Paul. Would you come with regenerating grace and transfer more out of the kingdom of darkness into the sun of your love. Father, we cast ourselves upon you for this work. We pray it would please you to save. Lord, whatever is needed, would you grant it? If it's courage, give an extra measure. If it's understanding, give an extra measure. If it's pride, by grace would you tear it down? Would you make us all realize where we are or where we would be apart from Jesus Christ? Lord, if intellect is a problem for some, they're trying to reason things in their own minds and use their own reasoning ability. Lord, would you tear that down? Whatever is needful, whatever is necessary, whatever would bring you glory. We pray and ask it in Christ's name. Amen.